Good morning. Hey, if you have your Bible, you can open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to continue in our series, uh, walking through 1 and 2 Corinthians this year. I mean, chapter 3 today. Let me get us started uh, this way. In 1915, uh, there was a British cartoonist named David Pill. And he was commissioned and produced a magazine cover for the Anchor Buggy Company, the Horse Buggy Company. Anyway, uh, people thought that he made it up. And this image became really well known, and they thought he was just brilliant. And then later on, come to find out that he just adopted the cover of a popular German magazine for his own project. And so it kind of took away the, ah, that's awesome. But it's still a pretty incredible one. Here's a picture of it. Uh, The magazine cover's on the left. Um, And many of you have probably seen this. This is what we call an optical illusion, okay, an optical illusion. How many of you have seen this picture before? Okay, you are being asked by your preacher to be quiet, okay? Don't say anything to the people seated next to you. If they start leaning in for a whisper, you push them away, all right? You say, no, I'm going to learn, okay? So, If you have seen this, you understand that there's more than one picture here, right? And so as you're looking at it, this is a very popular, well-known optical illusion. Some of you are trying to figure it out already. How many of you, show of hands, can see the young lady looking over her shoulder? Okay. Show of hands, how many of you can see a cartoon caricature of an older woman uh, in this image as well? Anybody see that? Oh, good. Same people that had already seen it. So that's great. (laughs) How many of you can, uh, are struggling right now? You're like, dude, this isn't happening for me. Okay. Okay. So one more time. Show of hands. You can only see. The, the, I love. This is fun for me. This is what preaching, like, hey, I'm getting a little bit out of this because I'm watching your faces, and it's just incredible to watch. Like, oh, what is it? Ah, ah. Right? So as you take a look, how many of you can see the younger woman? How many of you can see the older woman? Okay. For those of you that are struggling, who's struggling? Okay. Those of you struggling. Here, here's the deal. Take a look at it. You see the woman looking over her shoulder. Now you look at her ear, okay? Her ear becomes the eye of the older woman, okay? And the shape of her jawbone and face becomes the nose of the older woman. And then the neck, the necklace becomes the, the mouth of the older woman. And she's looking down to the left. Ah, how many people just got converted, all right? <laughs> all right, you can now see with clarity, right? This is pretty, now you're seeing it? Anyone still struggling? You're like, nope. Yeah, it's okay. Totally good. Totally good. It's awesome. Oh, man, this is fun. So optical illusions, we'll leave it up there and let you keep struggling. Try to listen to me while you're looking at it, okay? They reveal a lot about how the human brain works. Now, the human brain is the most complex organism in the world, like bar none. It is unbelievable. It's always working, always firing, always trying to process information, Okay, and I'm not a brain expert by any means, but I did some reading and research and found out that the way the human brain works is so fascinating because it's constantly trying to take what you're seeing, what you see or what you hear, and instantly it's trying to register it against all of your previous knowledge and experience to come up with an understanding, at least partially, of what you're seeing in front of you. Okay, All right, so in other words, your brain... When you find yourself in unfamiliar territory, something is presented to you, and visually or or audibly, when you find yourselves in unfamiliar territory, our brains are pulling from what we know of the past to try to make sense of the present, okay? It's trying to pull what we know of the past to make sense in our present. Optical illusions, then, reveal dead spots in our brain, like dead ends, like spots that we're like, man, I just can't get there. I can't see it. I've, I've seen this, and I, it's so hard for me to untrain my mind enough 
from what I think I know to be open to the fact that something else might actually be there, right? We get trapped. And if you've experienced this, you're maybe experiencing it right now. If you've experienced this, your brain gets trapped because you see something one way and the thought of seeing it a different way is so hard, so hard for you. Now, we can go a thousand different directions with this, right? But in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is going to walk us through how we have this optical illusion of sorts. We have this trained way of seeing ministry. I, I'm getting a little feedback. Is that maybe it's just me? It's just me. Just say it. All right. It's just you. All right. If you don't hear it, then I don't hear it, then we're good. But Paul's going to talk about ministry and how ministry... Um, we train our minds to see it a certain way, and it's so hard for us to see what else might be there. So as we get started, we need to define what ministry is, okay? What is ministry? We read about it in the Bible. We hear about it all the time. And so a working definition of ministry is this, the outworking of your apprenticeship to Jesus, your discipleship to him, meaning what's taking place as you follow Jesus internally works itself out so that the people God has put around you you get to see Christ being formed in them. So let me see this again. The outworking of your apprenticeship or discipleship to Jesus that brings about Christ being formed in other people. So this can happen a lot of different ways. It's a biblical case, I think, for defining ministry in broad terms. We can look at ministry and say it's what we've been doing all morning. Ministry takes place when you come to church, when you come to a church building. Ministry takes place as we sing together and to hear your voices and to take, I mean, that's just a great communion time today uh, that Ben led us through, right? This intentional moment, that's ministry. Ministry takes place when you talk to one another out in the lobby, when you greet somebody as they come in and you're welcoming and they feel welcome here at the church. Ministry happens when you pray with people out in the lobby. Ministry happens when we serve in kids area or student ministry or in serving coffee. In all these different ways, ministry happens when we're here and it's a good thing. But the Bible defines ministry in broader terms, meaning that it applies to more than just that. So ministry is actually a personal thing that you do. You have a personal ministry, right? We're going to get to 2 Corinthians 5 in two weeks, and in chapter 5, Paul's going to tell us, hey, when he saved you, he sent you. Everybody in Christ is a minister. On staff, when people work here at New Hope, one of the things we try to tell them is, hey, when you joined the ministry at New Hope on staff, you effectively left the ministry. Now, that's not all true, but we're trying to get a point across. You've effectively, now you're an equipper, Right Now you equip the ministers to go and do the work of ministry. When you come into the church, you're being equipped to go and do the work of ministry. All of you are ministers if you are in Christ. And so when you come to church and you gather on Sundays, ministry can be in the church. It can be leading a discipleship group. It can be being in a Sunday school class and actively learning and helping other people see truth. That can be your ministry. Your ministry can be you serving in these particular areas on Sunday mornings when you come together with the church. That can be your ministry. But ministry can happen outside of the church as well. And if you are a minister, and if ministry by definition is the outworking of what God is doing to transform your life into the lives of the people that are around you, boy, it can happen anywhere. That means when you stay at home as a stay-at-home mom and you're raising godly children, you are effectively ministering. When you serve and honor your spouse and lift them up, you are serving in ministry. When you go to work as a school teacher or you go to work as an administrator or a police officer or a first responder in any, in any job, business, finance, wherever you find yourself working, 
if ministry is, by definition, the outworking of what God's doing in your life into the lives of the people around you, you have a ministry everywhere you go. And this is hard because we can get so locked into seeing ministry as one thing. So you're like, yeah, Rob, that makes sense. But like, I've always just thought of ministry as the work that you do when you work at the church. Well, the Bible would say, no, that's not true. It's so much more than just people that work vocationally. Every Christian is a minister of the gospel, everyone who is in Christ. And as we are transformed by Jesus, as we journey with him and we apprentice under the teaching of Jesus, one of the dangers that comes along is this optical illusion of sorts, is for us to begin to see ministry in this one way. It's this set of Christian behaviors. And if I behave this way and I do these things and I check this off the list, then Jesus is happy with me. Now, those things aren't all bad. But the danger is, if you're not careful, you get so locked in and you train your brain into seeing ministry as simply behavior modification. And what happens is you slip into what we call legalism. And legalism is detrimental to ministry. I only see it this way. In Christianity and following Jesus and discipleship, it's defined only this way. You must behave this way. And so the question, the tension that we struggle with is, how do I go about seeing it where I don't lock my brain into seeing following Jesus in this one way, following these one rules? How do I stop myself from becoming legalistic? Well, this is something that the church in Corinth was struggling with as they begin to question Paul's authority as an apostle. And so Paul's going to defend his ministry here in chapter 3. He's actually defending his ministry from chapter 2 to chapter 7 pretty intensively. And here in chapter 3, he's going to defend this aspect of it where he's trying to get them to see, you're seeing things this way. And that's not bad because that's part of the picture. What they're seeing is part of the picture, but you're missing the fullness of the picture. Let's see how he breaks this down. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known to be read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. We're going to pause there. Like I said, Paul's beginning to defend his ministry here against accusations. Uh, their thoughts were that he was just this unimpressive fraud. Like, hey, you weren't there. You, and, and, and so he has to defend it. And he begins to get a little bit defensive, sort of. He starts to turn things around onto them, right, in a brilliant way. And so he opens up, which is always good. When you're dealing with tense, difficult people, this is a side note. If you're dealing with a, a tense situation where it's hard to have a conversation, it's always better to start with some questions and then get into the point you're trying to make. And so he does that. He starts with, hey, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Meaning, do I need to prove to you what I've done as a minister of the gospel? Do I need a letter of recommendation from you or to you in order for you to recognize the work that God is doing through me? I love this. In those days, 
people would carry with them letters of recommendation all the time. Like it was like a piece of paper you would carry with you. And so if you were going to go to a workplace or you were going to go and uh, meet with certain people or you were going to go and participate in some sort of a gathering and people needed to recognize who you were, you'd pull out your papers and you'd have somebody high up, somebody with high standing that everybody knew this person and everybody respected this person and they're recommending you. We do the same thing in our culture today. If you've applied for college or grad school or a job, many of you have had to get letters of recommendation to show that the people who are about to accept you or deny you can do so. Can we trust this person's character, their intelligence, their qualifications? In the same way, that's what they would do. They would carry around these pieces of paper that would prove to people, you can trust me. I can do this job. I'm somebody who's allowed to do this job based on what so-and-so said about me. Again, we do this all the time, and it even plays out, right? If, if you've met somebody, you're like, man, you work with John? John is your co- Oh, man, you work with John. I went to college with John. I lived with John. Man, John and I are best friends. Any friend of John is a friend of mine. It's a recommendation, right? And it breaks down, right? You're like, oh, man, have you been, you've been to Florida? Like, you, you're from Florida? My best friend just spent a week on the beach. I'm sure you know them. It's like, like no, it doesn't quite work, right? a little more specific than that. And in this culture, that's what they did. Like, hey, you need to be able to trust me. Well, here's a letter of recommendation. And so Paul is kind of calling them out. He's saying, you need a letter of recommendation from me? Well, he's telling the Corinthian church, no, I don't need a letter of recommendation for you or from you. You are my letter of recommendation. That's what he says to them. The ministry that took place in Corinth, the fact that I planted that church, the fact that I spent time pouring into you, the fact that your lives are changed forever because of what God did through me in your presence is my letter of recommendation. I need no papers. I don't need credentials. I don't need uh, uh, certain symbols after my name signed after everything that I signed. I don't need you to know all the credentials I have. All you need to do is take a look. And if anybody wants to question my worth, If anyone wants to question my qualification as an apostle or a minister of the gospel, all they need to do is come and spend time in Corinth to see the difference that the gospel made through me in that city. So he's saying to them, you are my letter of recommendation. The love and the care that I've shown you is all that I need to prove what God did through me. In other words, he's saying, can you see that? Or have you locked your mind into seeing this only one way? Have you locked your mind into this optical illusion, if you will, church at Corinth, where you have to have paperwork to prove everything? Or can you not look around and see all that God has been doing? Are you training your brain and you can't unlearn what you're just forcing yourself to see? Are you becoming legalistic? Now, in verses 4 and 5 that we read, Paul qualifies this. He says, this wasn't me that was doing it. Verses 4 and 5, he says, The competence I have for accomplishing what's been done in Corinth doesn't come from me. It comes from God. God is the one who was working. God is the one who gave strength. God is the one who gave abilities. It was all God who was working. He worked through me in your lives to bring about transformation. And that's my letter of recommendation. And then he steps back and says, But I know that I don't deserve it. I know that I haven't earned it. I know that I'm not good enough on my own. I didn't do this in my own strength, ability, wisdom, strategic leadership, any of that stuff. I simply submitted myself to God and he, through his Holy Spirit, worked in my life to then impact your life. Notice how Paul doesn't do this in a display of false humility. He has confidence. He even says right here in the verse you see on the screen, sorry, the verse that you see on the screen there, he says, we have confidence. I have a confidence of what God is doing. It's not false humility. 
What he's teaching us is this. Here's a side note. As I was reading this, it just became very clear that this is a problem in the church when it comes to our ministry. If we define ministry as the outworking of our apprenticeship to Jesus in the lives of other people so Jesus can be made known, then oftentimes what takes place in the church is we're scared to have confidence in what God is doing through us. That's not what Paul's doing here. He does not display false humility. He gives God the glory. And there are two really important ways for us to learn that we can steal glory from God. We can rob God of his glory. And the first one is we display false humility. We display a false humility. We say, man, God can't use me. Man, I got nothing. There's nothing I have to offer. I can't really work. And you're, what you're doing is you're belittling what God's doing in your life. And what happens then is you're stealing his glory from him. God can't work in my life. But there's a couple reasons. One, some people do this because they're searching for something. And so they're like, hey, I, I can't use this. Yeah, you can, man. You're a great teacher. Really? Why do you say that? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. What else? And what, You're fishing for worth. It's false humility. The other way, people actually genuinely believe God can't work through them. They genuinely believe they don't have what it takes. They genuinely believe God can't use me. And in doing so, we're, we're actually robbing God of his glory. Someone comes to you and they say, You've made such an impact in my child's life, my son or my daughter's life. Them being around you has made them closer to Jesus. I'm so grateful that God brought you into my child's life because the impact that you're making in their life. And for you to turn around and say, oh, man, it's nothing. Not, it's nothing. Like, I, I don't really have anything to offer. I, I've not really made a difference. I've really not done anything. In that false humility, you've robbed God of his glory. Because God did, in fact, work through you to make an impact in their life, and now you're saying, no, he didn't. Right? There's a confidence, but here's the danger. The other way that you can rob God of his glory is not just false humility, is your pride. You actually begin to think that it's you who's accomplishing this. You actually begin to believe that your strength and ability is what's making transformation in the lives of other people. You actually begin to believe and you forget that God's the one who's working through you to bring this about. And instead, you believe that, man, I'm getting good at this. I'm actually pretty good. This feels pretty great. I'm doing, man, if it wasn't for me, then this wouldn't be possible. And Paul's warning them. If you're not careful, you'll start to see things one way. And it'll lock you into the most legalistic way to see things. And legalism will steal God's glory Make you believe the lie that you can do things in your own power and will destroy the ministry he's trying to do through you. And in Corinth, they really struggled with this. They got legalistic about a certain way of doing ministry. And now Paul's going to jump in a little bit more beginning in verse 7. Here's what he says. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, meaning the law was a good thing, the law came and it came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? A lot of glory. What he's saying is this. You Corinthians, you see ministry. They've been told and they're slipping back into their ways of seeing ministry through the law of Moses. And what he's trying to tell them is this. That was a good thing. That was a part of the picture. And what you're seeing is a good thing, Corinth. But you're not seeing the whole picture. You're missing the other part of this. 
So he's saying, hey, the ministry of Moses, you can read about this in Exodus 31, where, where Moses would go into the tent to meet with God in the presence of God. He would come out to speak to the people. But the glory of being in the presence with God was too much for the people to look at. It would be like you going out on this beautiful day today and looking up and just staring at the sun. It's like, I can't handle it. And so he'd have to put a veil over his face while the glory that he was charged up with being in the presence of God faded. And when it got faded enough, he could take the veil off and be in their presence. And then he'd go back in and he'd meet with God. And all of a sudden, the glory would be like, oh, I was in partly the presence of God. And he'd come out. And, and again, like, we can't handle it. And they'd veil the face. He says, now... That glory faded with the teaching of Moses. So did the law. The impact of the law has faded in its glory. Now, through the Holy Spirit, he says, we can be in God's presence without veiled faces. We can be with God and have an intimate relationship with him. And the teaching and what the Spirit's doing, the glory that comes from it, giving God glory through all that he's doing through us doesn't fade because it leads people to everlasting life. He continues on here, kind of describing how this works a little more. Verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Meaning our, we know where our hope comes from. Again, this comes back to verses 4 and 5. Our competence doesn't come from our own strength. We have this hope that God's working through us. And because we believe that the living God, the creator of the universe, through his Holy Spirit, is actually using us to accomplish his ministry in the world, we can be bold because we're not doing so in our own strength. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away, meaning that fading glory. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Meaning, as they read the new covenant, even, or the old covenant, even today, what, what they're, they're not getting Jesus from it. They're not seeing how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And so their faces are veiled and they're not seeing the glory of what God wants to do today. Verse 17, now the Lord is the spirit, or verse 16, but whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, meaning when they're in Christ, you now see the presence of God. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, freedom from having veiled faces, freedom from being held back. And we all, who with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed, this is that discipleship, transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And from that transformation and the outpouring of what God's doing in our lives, he begins to bring about change in the lives of other people. Here's what Paul is not doing. What he's not saying, you have to hear this, is Old Testament bad, New Testament good. He's not saying law bad, grace good. What he's saying is there's a whole picture. And when you lock your ministry into being just rules and regulations, when you lock your ministry into the law, you're not seeing the whole picture and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that law for you. Like Jesus completed everything the law showed you was broken inside of you. In other words, what Paul is saying, he's comparing here, not Old Testament bad, New Testament good. What he's saying is, this is the difference between external regulations and internal transformation. There's a difference. In the Old Testament, they had the law. They'd have to live up to the law and live a perfect life. The problem was nobody could do it. And as a result, it led to death because all the law did was show you what was broken in you and you could never live up to it. But now in Christ, the law still shows you what's broken in you, but it also shows you how Jesus overcame it. Now, if you've been here for a while, you've heard me use this next analogy. I think it's the best one for wrapping my mind around this. If you're new here, maybe you haven't heard this. But the law in the, in the Bible, what Paul's doing here, he's saying the law is like an MRI. 
Okay? If you've ever had an MRI on an injury in your life. Last year, my son got hurt, and so we had to get an MRI on his knee. And so we went, and they put him into that machine, and he had to sit, and they let him play the music. Some of you don't even like to hear that because you get claustrophobic. Don't put me in that thing. But they put him into that thing, and they had to take this extensive picture of his knee. And when he came out of it, what, what they said, they were able to say, hey, here's what's wrong. They studied this image, and they said, here's what's gone wrong with your knee. The solution was not to push him back into the machine and say, heal him, machine. Like, it doesn't work. Because the MRI, all it did was point out what was wrong. It couldn't fix it. In the same way, the law, what Paul is saying here, is it shows you what's broken and wrong. And if you want to make ministry all about rules and regulations and behavior modification, all you're going to learn is how you can't live up to it. And it's going to burn you out. But the ministry of the Spirit brings about this sense of gratitude. Why? Because it's like taking the MRI, studying it, and bringing it to the right doctor who can say, I see what's wrong with your knee. Here's how we're going to fix it. In the same way, the law says, man, this is what's broken in your heart, but bring it to Jesus. That's how we fix it. And that's the kind of glory that never fades. But if you're not careful, it's what he's saying to the Corinthians. You'll make it all about the rules and regulations, and you'll never be able to live up to that. It will burn you out. Now, this is the danger of legalism. Legalism becomes this lie that Satan uses to tell me that if I behave the right way, and do all the right things, that somehow I'm going to be accepted more by God. And anyone who's walked with Jesus for long knows that that's a tool that Satan uses in our lives, is it not? He begins to convince us, man, if I just do enough, if I'm just behaving enough. And then what we do is we impose that standard on other people. We begin to get judgmental. We begin to look at the lives of other people and say, if you would just live right, if you would just do right. And so legalism manifests itself. If that's what's going on in our hearts, what comes out of that type of transformation is judgment. And you'll hear it in the form of hellfire and brimstone preaching. Get your life together or God won't accept you. Go do this or God is going to reject you. Or we'll see it play out in our lives with this like, format of loving people that is all about their behavior modification. This happened in, in my life quite a bit. where I, I seem to have forgotten over and over again in my walk with Jesus that God is concerned with what we do. You can't argue against that in the Bible. He is absolutely concerned with the decisions we make and the, and the things that we do with our life. He is absolutely, but he's far more concerned with who you're becoming. He's far more concerned with the transformation of your heart. When we lose sight of that, we hurt people. My, my, my dad died. I, I, showed you guys, I told you guys that last week. When he passed away, when he, uh, I was adopted by my uncle. And my mom was in and out of the picture. My uncle being my mom's brother. Wonderful man. I'm so grateful for him. He adopted me and my brother. Well, then his other sister, my mom's sister and his sister, went through a tragedy, and he adopted her son too. And so then it was my uncle, my mom, and my aunt, and all of us kids in and out. Mom, mom was in and out. But we were, man, we were all kind of doing this thing together. And then I become a Christian as a senior in high school. And I came back into the house. And I was fired up, man. I want you guys. And it was hellfire and brimstone. Chain, why, how could you make those decisions? Why would you do this? The Bible says, and I'm, I'm just coming hard at them. Right? And now through a series of circles, I got to baptize my mom. It was beautiful. It was awesome. But my aunt was holding out. And I was just constantly like, you got to make better choices. You got to do better. And she just, 17 years, I walked with Jesus and prayed for her. Nothing. What I learned was this. My legalism kept her from the cross for 17 years. It was a barricade to her being able to see what Jesus wanted. 
And it was the simple and profound and beautiful love of my children and my wife and her life that made it click. See, they didn't carry the baggage I carried, and they didn't have to work through it. They just loved her and told her about Jesus. And so on the very same day I baptized my daughter, I got to baptize my aunt. It was awesome. It was awesome. But I also learned this. I got to baptize her despite my legalism, not because of it. Not because of it. And I learned that on that day, when I try to control the narrative, when I try to, I quench the Holy Spirit from working. I stop him from working in the lives of other people that are around me. Jesus spoke to this. On the night before he died, on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus gathered his disciples together and he wanted them to get this so bad. And in John chapter 15, look at how he describes this. John chapter 15. Just let this kind of wash over you. He says, I am the true vine. and My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, though, and my words abide deep in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. You give glory to God, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You don't rob God of his glory when your ministry bears much fruit. But then Jesus says, you can't do that in your own strength. You cannot bear the fruit necessary for a good ministry by yourself. You just can't do it, and you become legalist when you do, when you try to. And so what he says is, instead, you just need to attach yourself to the vine. So as a disciple of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus, your only job is to stay attached to Jesus. He'll take care of producing fruit in you. The problem with Christians is we like to climb out on the edge of the branch and staple dead fake fruit to it to pretend like we're doing something with our lives when we're not. And to say that out loud, we're like, this is ridiculous. Who would ever go do that? We do it all the time. And he's saying, just stay attached to me. I'll take care of everything else. I'll take care of producing things in you and transforming the lives around you. Let me transform you. And in that transformation, you will begin to see your letters of recommendation. So last week, we ended with this, like, hey, you can't just listen to this and not do anything. And we talked about, hey, what does it mean as an apprentice of Jesus to become a forgiving person? And I gave you questions to wrestle with all week, and I hope that you did. And Ben told you about this head, heart, hands thing that we're doing. Man, I'm excited for this. Kind of teaching us that what we learn from the Bible in our head and how it transforms our heart must play itself out in how we actually live and the work that comes through our life into the lives of other people. So I want to give you three questions briefly. This week, for you to start to think, man, am I legalistic? Am I like in that optical illusion seeing only one image when God through his spirit wants me to see the full picture? Where am I messing up? You can begin to work through that and pray, and we would love to come alongside you and help you with that. Three quick questions. The first one is this. Who is your letter of recommendation? Whose life is being transformed because of the transformation God is doing in your life? Yes, he's giving you a somebody. Do you need credentials? Do you need to say, well, I go to this Sunday school class and I attend church every single week and I've read my Bible and I, I do this Bible study and I study under this person. I've got this. Or is it simply God is transforming my heart and you can tell because look at the lives of the people that I'm around. 
Who's your letter of recommendation? Second question, where is it that you may have been robbing God of his glory? And what part of your life are you robbing God of his glory? What areas of your apprenticeship to Jesus have become a source of pride and self-reliance? Where do you display false humility and refuse to give God the glory? In other words, where do you need to repent? Christian life is a life of repentance. Don't pretend like you have nothing to repent of. Where is it that you have been keeping glory from God because of barricades you've put up in your own life? Last one to me is really important too. It's this. Are you tired from following Jesus? Are you exhausted? Because for you, following Jesus has just been rules and regulations, a checklist of Christian behavior, and it's just worn you out because that is not the life that he's invited you to. He has invited you into a life of intimacy and transformation that if you'll just focus on that, he will use to change lives. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this invitation that Jesus gives us in Matthew 11. Let this kind of wash over us this morning. Here's what he says. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. If we will abide in him and be transformed by him, he'll help us to see the full picture and do immeasurably more than we'll ever be able to do on our own. Let's pray. Father, thank you for working through us. It is a humbling thing to be used by a holy God. May we never lose sight of how humbling that is, the fact that the perfect creator of the universe would want to work in and through broken vessels because of the perfect son who lived the perfect life, died the death that we deserved, and defeated death, sending the spirit to live and work through us. What a humbling thing. To think that our lives, as we are transformed from the intimacy of walking closely with you, learning the unforced rhythms of grace, might be used to help form Christ in others. It is a humbling thing. So we stand before you this morning humbled, fully aware, God, that if we're not careful, we will begin to become legalistic and simply become behavior modifiers instead of heart transformers. So our prayer is simple. May we abide deeply in relationship with you and trust that you will use the transformation that takes place in that to bring about the ministry that you've called us to. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.